Father God, we desire this morning to come before you so that we might worship you in the splendor of your holiness and ascribe to you the glory due your name. We first recognize this morning that you are the one that holds all things together by the power of your word. We adore you as our creator, our provider, our giver of life, and the one that enlivens our souls, the one who illuminates your word, and as our wonderful Father God who has adopted us and made us your own. You are indeed a good and gracious king. We confess to you that we are a people that easily become sidetracked from our primary purpose in life. Your word is clear that we exist to point to you, give you glory, and enjoy you forever. And yet, it is so easy for us to become hectic and chaotic and busy. And in this busyness, where we elevate the meager activities of our own miniature kingdoms, we often forget to pause and give you the glory that you deserve as the one in whose kingdom we are graciously allowed to dwell. Our hearts so easily well up with pride. And so, Father, we ask this morning that you would please forgive us of creating our own lordship, and please take this moment by your Holy Spirit to adjust our hearts. Please soften them to truly grasp the reality of our place as your creations, your subjects, and grasp your place as our creator God who is above all. This morning, we have much for which we are thankful, Lord. We thank you first and foremost for your protection of our brother Spencer Holland in his car accident this week. To know the circumstances of the wreck and see the damage done to his car is to understand that his survival was truly your miraculous hand. Father, we don't even begin to assume we know your will or heart in issues of providence, but in this case, we are so thankful that your will of command was to help him walk away from the accident. While we trust you eternally with our very lives and know that you ultimately give eternal life and healing to your people, regardless of even if we lose our life on this earth, we selfishly thank you for giving us more time with our brother. And so we praise you, God. We also thank you for your grace and good provision that we experienced as a church at our family camp this last week. We give you thanks for the location, the hosts, our wonderful staff who worked so hard to make it memorable, for all the wonderful growth in relationships amidst the brothers and sisters of this church. And we thank you, Lord, for one another. Most of all, we thank you that all of it is made possible by the conversion of your Holy Spirit that has bonded us together with a familial bond that we will not fully understand until glory. But thank you for giving us a glimpse at that heavenly reality for those few days. We humbly ask that you would continue this work of binding our hearts together in your spirit as time continues. We also pray for our brothers and sisters across the world this morning. Please be with the local assembly of Salem Reformed Church and their pastor, Gustavo Barros, this morning. We pray for unity in the gospel, peace, and sanctification in their midst. We also pray for the Taves family as they serve in the middle of Indonesia for Mission Aviation Fellowship. Thank you for allowing us to partner with them for many years now. Please be with them in the midst of their ministry as they seek to share the gospel with the indigenous people there. Please give them a fresh vision of service for your kingdom and a heightened understanding of your empowerment of their ministry. And closer to home, Lord, we pray for our brother Ted Worth this morning. Father, we thank you that you've been present in the midst of his trial as he's been hospitalized for almost four weeks now with lung issues. We pray as a body this morning that you would hear our prayers for healing and allow him progression so that he might be able to come home. We also pray for Cheryl, his wife. Please give her the strength to continue supporting her husband so well. And we trust you, Lord, regardless of outcome, 
with this and all the silent requests of our hearts. So we petition you this morning knowing you are a good and gracious God. And now, Lord, as we step into your inspired word, we pray that you would give us a fresh vision of your glory and lordship in our lives. Please help our hearts and minds to be open so that you might enthrone yourself on the praise of your people. Help us to praise you now by our desire to know you more and study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. And you can open your Bibles to Psalm 24. This morning, as you're turning to Psalm 24, I want you to imagine and, and remember the last major storm you experienced. Was it a storm that caused you to be paralyzed with awe? Have you ever experienced a storm like that? One where you realized your insignificance and the strength of creation around you. On my first visit to West Africa years ago, a number of the mission team I was with, uh, including Sam Norton and, and Pat Schneider, uh, we decided to walk down to a local bakery to get bread for the day. And we had just walked out of the bakery, or the boulangerie in French, and we were slowly making our way back to our house when we noticed large puffs of dust popping up from the ground. Very interesting phenomenon. And it took a moment, but we realized that this was nothing more than giant, and I do mean giant, drops of rain. Now, these were not small drops in large quantity, as we see in Oregon, the general mist we see throughout the entire winter uh, here in Oregon. These were significant drops, spaced very far apart. And we looked at each other, wondering what was going on when one of our team, who had been there before, told us very emphatically that if we didn't want to get immediately drenched, we would need to run as fast as possible back to the house. And he was saying this as he was already running. Now, we sprinted back as fast as we could go, and just as we were walking into the covered porch, one of the largest storms I have ever seen came barreling through the city of Ouagadougou. And this storm was unlike anything I had ever experienced. The rain dropped as if it was in sheets onto the barren dry ground, creating instantaneous flash floods, overpowering the meager sewer system and trenches. And the thunder was so loud, it made the ground shake. And to this day, I am not sure I have ever experienced a storm as strong as that one in Ouagadougou. Now, as we stood watching the storm, I distinctly remember the first words of Psalm 24 just jumping into my mind. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers." And Psalm 29 is like it. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. Now, is it any wonder that for millennia, humanity has attached the hand of God to storms? Storms humble us and make us realize that we are not the most powerful force in all of creation. No matter our technical advancements, no, nor our understanding of the uh, meteorolog uh, meteorological hard word to say, cause behind storms, we have learned that we cannot control them and we still can't save ourselves from their power. We might think just because we understand them better that we have control over them, but just go through one and you'll realize very quickly that you are meager and small. You see, they help us realize our place in creation. 
Now this morning, as we look at Psalm 29, David, the psalmist, will use the imagery of a storm to visualize the power and authority of the king of the universe. And we are meant to step into both psalms today, not just from a reading high above, but to experience what the author was experiencing when he wrote them. This uses imagery and metaphor in a powerful way for us to feel the psalms today, and I hope that we will. In this psalm, speaking of the storm, David will show God Almighty Yahweh as he moves to his temple throne and declares his power among the spiritual and physical realms. Unlike the pagan gods, however, such as Thor or Zeus or Baal, who rode through the heavens in their mythical chariots or on bulls, exercising the fullness of their physical power, supposedly, in the storm, Yahweh is different, as we'll see. For Yahweh simply speaks, and the storms will come into existence, and he will use them by his voice to portray the power of his verbal command over creation. Now, this imagery of a processional displaying God's power will be mirrored as well in our first psalm, Psalm 24. There we will see imagery of the royal processional as the throngs of, its, of his citizens head towards his temple to give him praise and worship as the king of glory. The closest thing we can come to in our American mindset uh, is looking over at Great Britain when Prince Charles was just crowned king uh, and the carriage moving towards Westminster Abbey in order for him to be crowned. It's hard for us to understand these things, but if we step into them and fully try to see the imagery, they are powerful psalms. Both psalms will attempt to remind us of God's authority, God's majesty and power, and remind us, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism states, that our and man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What's your purpose, dear friend? Your chief end is to, say it with me, glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why we all exist. My prayer for us today is that we will see God in truth and feel cause to worship him in spirit as the king who wields benevolent lordship over every moment of our lives. And when we take these two psalms together as if they are one, we will see a focus on the king of glory, and it will be beautiful to behold. Today, we will see the royal procession of the king of glory. The royal procession of the king of glory. Now, we've had Psalm 29 already read to us, so let's now together read from Psalm 24 as a community of God's people under his lordship, beginning in verse 1 there, beginning with the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. The first section we come to this morning is the announcement of the Lord's sovereign authority. The announcement of the Lord's sovereign authority. As I noted, both psalms give imagery of a royal procession as if the king emerges from his palace and moves through his adoring citizens to be enthroned at the temple in which he is worshipped. We begin with a public declaration of the complete sovereignty of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob over not a portion of the earth, but all the earth and the fullness therein. You can imagine a herald coming out of the royal residence and getting his long trumpet and blowing it as loud as he possibly could, drawing all attention to him so that he might say in formal language, Behold, the king who has sovereign power over all the earth, he is about to emerge. And everyone waits with bated breath to see the royal beauty come out of the palace. Now we use this word sovereignty a lot in Christianity because it is a base part, a foundational piece of our faith. The characteristic of sovereignty means supreme authority or power. It is a statement of dominion and jurisdiction. And here David declares that the earth and everything in it is under the jurisdiction of the Lord. He is judge over it all. Now, immediately when we discuss this topic, Christians who know their Bibles will ask, so what does it mean then when it says that Satan right now is the prince of this world? Doesn't he run things here? Isn't that why there's so much brokenness and sin? Well, the answer is absolutely yes, but he only does so under the ultimate authority and will of God. Paul even calls Satan the God of this world. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 4.4. Uh, he's speaking of something slightly different from what we're talking about here, but he says, in their case, the people that are blinded, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So he's called a position of authority, but that authority is still underneath the ultimate authority of God. Recognize that God... Yahweh, in his sovereign will and providence, gave our first mother and father free will to obey or rebel. And in rebelling, what they did is gave their role as subregents under God's authority over to Satan and to his kingdom of darkness. And so God, in his mighty power, said, okay, and started to roll out his providence towards redemption. All of God's redemptive work that proceeded forth from that moment has been God carrying out his will, taking what our free will and Satan meant and mean for evil and utilizing them to accomplish his ends and bring himself glory, bring the world restoration, and display his gracious mercy to those that he has saved by his gracious will. And I can tell you with every ounce of my being that things that make absolutely no sense now on the other side of heaven, will make complete sense. And we will see that God is benevolent and gracious, and the evil that we experience and the trial and brokenness that we experience is sourced from Satan, and yet God is sitting in a place where he is slowly but surely taking that evil and turning it for good so that he might be glorified and we might see his glory. 
Now, while it seems in these cases of evil and brokenness, like his hands are off the reins of this world, it is absolutely not the truth. As verse 2 declares, he is the founder and the finisher of this world, not just our faith, but of the whole world. Notice the wording here. It says, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Remember that for the Hebrews, the sea and large bodies of water, these were the abode of chaos and destruction. It's where the chaos monster himself dwelt. In the surrounding Canaanite mythology, the waters were the place where the god Yam wrestled with the primary god Baal for control of the world. And so the fact that Yahweh has founded and established, which are two words of taking chaos and making it ordered, the fact that he has done this on top of chaos speaks to the fact that he is the ultimate power and authority and that these other supposed pagan gods are actually nothing in comparison. So why didn't God just snap his fingers and fix everything the moment after sin? Why did God create Lucifer knowing that he would tempt mankind to rebel? Why did God create Adam and Eve knowing they would sin? And on and on and on the list of questions go dealing with the problem of evil. But friends, all these questions do is prove that we are created beings attempting to take over the throne of God's authority, calling him to answer to us rather than taking our rightful place as his citizens. Citizens who should be thankful for our very existence, thankful for his provision, trusting of his will, recognizing we are minute and cannot fathom his providence. Texts like verses 1 and 2 that so blatantly declare the Lord's authority and majesty must bring us to a place where we gladly admit our insignificance and his place of glory and rule. The world, and I would say the church as a whole, has forgotten this and needs to regain this understanding. If we do this, it establishes our hearts in wonderful contentment and joy, and gratitude, and generosity. You see, understanding God's sovereignty, in many cases, is the key to having these in our life, contentment, and joy, and gratitude, and generosity. It is my, my firm conviction that it is God's sovereignty that we must accept and glory in if we want these characteristics. Let me explain. Discontentment comes often from taking a place of supposed sovereignty, and being frustrated that the created world around us does not submit to my authority. Rightly remembering that we are God's subjects and his sovereign will reigns puts us instead into a place of being content with what we are given and humbly submitting requests to him knowing that he is not obligated to deliver, but that he is a good father who knows best what is good for us. And this will lead us to a place of true joy and gratitude, regardless of our circumstances. Because God is not obligated to provide anything for us. And yet every day is full of thousands of moments of God's gracious provision and mercy to each one of us. If we fully accept this truth, we will recognize that everything, everything in our lives, our very lives themselves, our material possessions, our time, our talents, our treasure, our energy, and even our relationships, they are not ours to reign over. 
No, they are ours to steward faithfully because they have been graciously given to us by the one who created and founded the reality in which we exist. When we get this, and I think we spend our entire lives moving towards getting this, when we get this, we will gladly and generously give any of these things back to the Lord and hold life in a place of open-handed worship. Friends, this is the solution to so many of your and my struggles. You've got parenting issues? Express thanks for the Lord and steward your position as a parent, raising up your children in the admonition of the Lord. You've got marriage issues? Stop complaining to the Lord about your spouse and instead be thankful to the Lord for your spouse and all the blessings and all the ways they sanctify you. You frustrated about your job? Well, the Lord could really quickly take away that provision. Maybe we should instead be thankful for it and not think that we are Lord over the world. In all these ways, brothers and sisters, we have to ask ourselves, what is my personal stance toward the sovereignty of God? Is it a primary foundation of your faith? Or is it something that you poo-poo and shoo aside and say, yeah, yeah, I know about that, all the while taking your position on the throne of God yourself? Perhaps we need to ask the Lord for hearts that truly understand his sovereignty in the world and in our lives because it says here that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Why then do we think that we have carved out a nice little dominion for ourselves? He is the sovereign king, amen? amen. Lord, help our hearts to profess this truth. Well, the announcement has been declared. And now the author, David, pulls back to notice those attending the parade of the Lord's adoring public those who will accompany him on his procession of victory and kneel before him at his enthronement. And so next we see there in verses 3 through 6, the processional of the Lord's summoned citizens. The processional of the Lord's summoned citizen. Let's read it again there in verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. The wording here for the Hebrews would be, without a doubt, returning to the holy hill of Mount Zion and the holy place is the holy of holies. It was there that the Ark of the Covenant would have been placed. And now let's pause for a minute and remember what this then means. The word Ark is Latin for chest, like a luggage chest. It was a chest that memorialized the covenant of God with his people. It did so by containing reminders of the covenant relationship, the stone tablets of the law, a jar of manna, and Aaron's budding staff. But an even more important reminder of the particular covenant relationship that Israel had with God was the fact that the Ark of the Covenant is called the footstool of God's throne. It was the place that God in a very anthropomorphic way, because he's not human, he's spirit, God the Father is, but in an anthropomorphic way, picturing him as a human, he was seated in the throne room of heaven, and his very feet stepped down onto the footstool there in the Holy of Holies. And so for the high priest who would enter in once a year, he would come to the very footstool, the base of the throne, to understand who God is. 
It clearly displayed, this idea did, that he was king and his people were to bow before him in humble and submitted worship. So who was it that received this honor of being able to worship at his feet in intimate relationship as his citizens? Well, four designations are given. You can read them right there in the text. First, it says, he who has clean hands, and secondly, a pure heart. These are the external and internal sides of the same coin. Clean hands means that there is an outward innocence regarding how you have dealt with other people. A person of unclean hands means someone who had committed murder especially, but also rape or robbery or just general harm. Their outward heart towards others was not whole. And a pure inward heart is someone whose heart, mind, spirit, and attitude is innocent in its motivations and deep desires and thoughts. And third, David designates that his citizens do not lift up their soul to what is false. And this is a statement of relationship toward God and can be contrasted with the first line of Psalm 25. Look there in your Bibles. Look at what Psalm 25 verse 1 says, To you, O Yahweh, O Lord, I lift up my soul. So someone who lifted their soul to what is false is someone who worships a false pagan god or an idol that represents them. It is an idolater. And so a citizen of Yahweh and his kingdom is one who will only worship, serve, and trust Yahweh and no other false idol. And fourth, it says that this citizen does not swear deceitfully. The third item was in regard to the citizen's relationship with Yahweh vertically, and this is in regards to relationship with others horizontally in the Lord's kingdom. The Lord's citizen is one who keeps their word, especially their vows of covenant faithfulness. They are faithful to their oath. This is one of, if not the most important descriptors of what has always made God's people distinct. In describing the practices of early Christians, one of the main items spoken of by the Roman historian Pliny the Younger was that part of the gathering on the Lord's day was that Christians committed themselves by oath to live a life reflective of Christ's rule. They committed by oath and vow to one another that we, that they would live under the lordship of Christ together. Does this describe us and the seriousness with which we take the importance of our word? How many Christians today would characterize their gathering at their church as that, as Christians coming together and saying, we take an oath together to commit to life under the lordship of Christ? I pray that that's what we do every Sunday. If we're honest, though, we hear these things, these four characteristics, clean hands, clean hearts, not having idolatry in our lives, not swearing deceitfully or breaking covenant faithfulness. And I think if we ask, if we are those people, we will probably honestly respond with, I don't really think so. Like the prophet standing before the majesty of God in Isaiah 6, 5, if we're honest with ourselves, we will cry out something similar to Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And when we see the King, the Lord of hosts, in all his glory and perfection, there is no choice but to say, woe is me. As Seth prayed earlier, there's no way I compare to you. There's no way I can come close to you. Our hearts, if honest, will cry out and say, Lord, you know what these hands have done. 
You know what this heart has thought and desired. You know the idols I have carefully carved in my life and that I adore every day. We'll say, Lord, you know the litany of lies and false oaths that I have declared in my life because I just want to people please. And I don't care if I'm telling the truth. I just want people to like me. We'll say, Lord, all I deserve is nothing but your judgment and justice. If our first mother and father deserve to be ejected from your presence, Lord, then we deserve the same in far greater fashion. This is an honest heart when we see the king, the Lord of hosts. The original Hebrews would have had this same experience because as they approached the temple, singing this song, it would have been no different. You see, many commentators believe that the priests would be standing out on the southern steps as people came to the temple, and they would be yelling out loud, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? It was a question meant to elicit self-reflection and conviction, and it would be among a large grouping of what are called mikvahs or baptismal baths, where people would say, well, I can't, and so I need to be cleansed. And as later worshipers would have approached these southern stamps, they would have been greeted with these ritual baths for them to cleanse themselves in before entering into the gates of the temple. They knew they were unclean, and if we are honest with ourselves, we know the same about ourselves. To approach the pure holiness of God, we must be cleansed of our sin and admit our solemn need for God's mercy and grace. Praise God for the next two verses. Praise God for the next two verses. He will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. These wonderful lines declare that these very characteristics are not inherent to the people, but are actually gifts of the Lord. Do you see that? They're grace. If the person in question was simply innocent and pure and trustworthy by nature, there would be no need for the king to give them the designation of righteous. And so blessing and this designation of you are righteous are not the result of the individual's good nature, but they're the very gift that makes them so. And this is why the Lord is called here the God of his salvation. You could rightly translate this, God his Savior. The Lord, Yahweh alone, is the one who provides us the very means for us to be in his presence. He is the one who hand-selects us and declares us by his sovereign authority righteous. Friend, you may look at yourself and see nothing but impurity and sin. And you might say rightly, I will never ascend his holy hill or enter his presence. I don't deserve to do so. And that is true by your own power. But this is why we need a forerunner. We need one to go before us and establish the way into the throne room of God by his own perfect obedience. Jesus Christ has made that way possible and called you and I to follow him into glorious worship of the one true God. He is God, our salvation. 
He is the one that by his very death in our place split the curtain so that we all could come into the Holy of Holies. We don't have to have the right head covering and dress. We don't have to have gone through the right ritual bath. We don't have to have provided the most perfect sacrifice because it was provided for us through Jesus Christ. And so because he has ascended the hill, because he has entered the Holy of Holies, we can follow in his path. Friends, lean on his righteousness and then allow his Holy Spirit to begin transforming you into this person, one who is in his image with clean hands and a pure heart, faithful in covenant and worship of God Almighty and faithful in covenant love to his people. This is why David will declare in Psalm 32, 1 through 2, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is the grace that is given to us by God. It is not a dismissal of our sin. It is a taking on of our sin so that it might be removed and we might be purified. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand at the footstool of his benevolent throne? Those whom he has blessed by his gracious declaration that they have been made pure and innocent by the sacrificial blood of Jesus. This is the generation that seeks after him. And so we can pray, Lord, let us be this generation. Let us be the people who seek your face every moment so that we might raise our eyes from the shame of our sinful rebellion and instead become overwhelmed with the sight of God's beauty and power. And this is David's next stanza of praise and worship as he calls the very doors of the temple to raise themselves in praise and acknowledge the king who is about to enter through and take his rightful place seated on the throne of the entire cosmos. David next lifts his eyes and we see the processional of the king of glory in verses 7 through 10. The processional of the king of glory. The processional has reached its highest point here. And the announcement of the king has been made. He has entered his royal chariot. He has paraded through his adoring people who know all they are is owed to him. And now he arrives at the temple in which he will be crowned and enthroned. And David, in beautiful poetic fashion, declares the sovereignty of the king. And that sovereignty extends even to the inanimate materials of the temple. David is weaving together a couple layers here using poetic methods. He's using repetition to emphasize the weight of what is being declared. And then he's using something called antiphonal recitation. I know that's a crazy phrase, antiphonal recitation. But this is just a fancy term for a question and answer or a responsorial song. We saw it earlier in the question of verse 3 and the responses of 4 through 6. And this is meant to be used liturgically in the midst of worship so that the entirety of those gathered for worship may to participate. So we're going to read through it again, verses 7 through 10 here, but this time we're going to use it slightly differently. We're going to use the slide on the screen. And here's how it's going to go. I'm going to do part number one. You'll see that twice. This side from this aisle over, you're going to do part number two. And you'll see number two twice, two questions. Part number three, you guys are going to do, all right? We got this? You all awake? I just saw like three people go, oh, I got to do something. Hold on. All right. Here we go. Ready? Okay. I'll say one. You guys say two. Then you say three. Here we go. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Don't you love liturgy? Man, I would hate being part of a church where we just have a band that performs for us and a pastor who gives us a great TED Talk. I want to be involved, amen? amen? This is how we worship. We're involved in worship. You're not just sitting there like bumps on a log going, yeah, hurry up and give me my spiritual food, right? No, you're participating, and this is how they would have participated back in the day. They would have had this response, And some believe that this was a psalm that was written for the occasion of the Ark of the Covenant returning to the temple after a victorious battle over the enemies of Israel. The Ark represented the power of God as head of the military might of his people. And like a conquering king riding back to his hometown on a white steed, the symbol and marker of God's authority was returning to be placed in its rightful throne, the Holy of Holies, where the Lord would put his foot upon it. It would be the mercy seat. And so we see these titles of conquering king being used. King of glory, the Lord mighty in battle, strong and mighty, the Lord of hosts, which means captain of God's army. And friends, God does not change. This is the same God who walked through Jerusalem in Birkenstocks and a toga. He did not become weak. He was always strong. He is the general of the Lord's army. And yet he conquered us with love. And he will destroy all evil one day. Now this context is important because the military victory would have assured the people peace and some level of provision and prosperity. They were saved from the threat of the enemy and the opposing kingdom. This gave them hope and joy in anticipation of what was to come. And so the phrase, lift up your heads, speaks to this very idea. The king of glory was so majestic that the temple itself was to anticipate the hope of what was to come as the king of glory entered in and took up residence as the victorious sovereign. You don't know it, but you do this exact same thing every four years, depending upon which party you are. If you've lived long enough, you don't do this anymore. You you hang your head every four years in complete and utter despondency. But many people, especially young people, they go, great, our guy's in, or... Maybe not our guy, but, oh, we have hope. The next four years, finally, prosperity will come. And then you live long enough, and you go, no. It's God's grace. We're not completely destroyed, right? But this is what would happen. And imagine if we actually got a person who was a great leader. We might actually have reason to hope. And the temple here says, well, look at who we're getting. We're getting the king of glory. So lift up your head. Lift up your head, O gates. The temple itself was anticipating this wonderful sovereign to come. In the contemporary context of how it was used by Israel in in the days following David, they help us grasp the sovereignty of God over the entire earth. But I wonder if according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this was not all that was intended. It was not all just intended for David's day and the days that follow. Notice something interesting in verse 7. David calls them the ancient doors. The Hebrew word here is olam, which means eternal or of eternity, ancient. David seemed to be casting our eyes upon two different temples. One, the earthly, the finite and temporal, 
was always meant to be a representation of the heavenly, the eternal. In the Jewish mind, as the Ark of the Covenant entered into the temple on the earthly plane, Yahweh himself was entering into the heavenly throne room to take his place as sovereign king. And this parallelism of thought is seen in the New Testament as well, as the author of Hebrews declares that the earthly church gathering together is representative of a heavenly reality. I've shown this to you many times before, but it's worth repeating from Hebrews 12. For you, the church, have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, but you have come to Mount Zion, the holy hill, friends, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. As we gather here, friends, we represent a heavenly and eternal reality of which we will one day be a physical part. But for now, we merely give representation to this truth and call others to lift up their heads in anticipation of the hope of eternal life that is sure to come. We know this hope to be sure because in part of the very declaration of this psalm. James Montgomery Boyce points out in his commentary on this psalm that ancient rabbinic sources note that this psalm was always to be read on what would be our Sundays in the temple the first day of the week. And so it is very highly likely that on Palm Sunday, this psalm would have been sung by the priests. I know this might be a stretch, but let's just think about it for a moment. This was the day that Christ approached Jerusalem to enter into it as the one who would be both the sacrificial suffering servant and the victorious messianic king. Now, we cannot know for sure, but imagine the heavenly reality as the temple priests sang within the temple gates, who is this king of glory? Not having any clue who it's going to be. And meanwhile, outside, the people declare, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And what did Christ say? He said, if I quiet these people down, who will cry out? The inanimate objects, the rocks themselves will cry out who the king of glory is. The majesty and glory of God in that moment was entering into the earthly temple to be tried and wrongly convicted and crucified and buried, all to suffer the consequence of my sin and yours. But then he resurrected and ascended where his blood-bought sacrifice cleansed the very tabernacle of heaven. And this was so that you and I might enter in and worship at the feet of our gracious and merciful Lord. Who is this king of glory? Jesus the Christ. He is the king of glory. Amen? Amen. Jesus is the king of glory who has brought us to the holy hill. Friends, you don't need to do more to earn it. You never could. Jesus has brought us to the holy hill and enrolled us in the assembly of heaven. And friends, his reign is so glorious and majestic that even if no human were saved to declare it, even the rocks, even the very gates of the temple, even the atoms in the objects that are inanimate to you and I, they would cry out in praise, ascribing glory and strength to the Lord. For all creation is intended for this very purpose. The earth is the Lord, Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
And that's what we see in this second picture of the royal procession of the King of Glory as well. As we next take a look at Psalm 29 and we see in the first nine verses the testimony of the Lord's sovereign authority. The testimony of the Lord's sovereign authority. This first processional was a clear picture of a throng heading to the temple to worship at the coronation of the king. This psalm, however, here in Psalm 29 is a more poetic and symbolic representation of a very similar processional. And just as the first, it begins with an announcement, almost more of a command from the royal herald there in verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name, for the wor- uh, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. In Psalm 24, we have the name of God, Yahweh, as we say it, shown six times in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, of the English translation. Six times it was there. But here, in the Hebrew of this text, we have four times in these first two verses the name of the Lord. And we will see it another 14 times in the remainder of the psalm. In this short psalm, Yahweh's name is spoken 18 times. Do you think he wanted us to get the point of who the Lord is? David is hammering home the idea that Yahweh alone deserves the praise and worship intended for God. You see, Israel was saved out of a world of polytheism, which means a religious worldview where there is a pantheon of gods to be worshipped. Poly, meaning many. But Israel met and was saved by a singular God who presented himself to Moses as the great I am, or Yahweh. They were called then to a singular covenantal love and worship known as monotheism. Everyone say monotheism. Mono meaning one, or the worship of one God, and only one God. Mono means singularly one. In Isaiah 43, 10 through 11, this is re-emphasized and made clear. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Notice this. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Many of the Hebrew Old Testament texts, such as the opening scenes of Job, picture God sitting among a council of spiritual beings. Now, these are what we would call angelic beings meant to serve him and given dominion in various ways by him, but they're subservient to him. They are not gods. And even if some exist in rebellion to his ultimate rule, they still sit under his sovereign designation, his sovereign uh, dominion. But even then, he still has the right to command them and determine what is allowed and what is not. We see this in the story of Job. The bottom line is that there is no other God. There is no one else at that level of the divine hierarchy but the triune God that we serve. Now, unfortunately, Israel was quick to claim monotheism but actually existed in most of their history that's described in the Bible in what is called henotheism. Everybody say henotheism. How many of you have heard that word before? Not many. We know polytheism, we know monotheism. But henotheism means worshiping one particular God who existed out of many. And so during the reign of the kings, Israel would ascribe power to other gods while claiming that their God alone was great and rightly ruling. And so those theologians that declare that there are other gods, they're henotheists. They are not monotheists. And therefore, it's not Christianity. Be clear about that. Even if they're very smart theologians, they're henotheists when they declare that there's Yahweh and then others. There are no other gods. Isaiah 43 just showed us that. 
And so this idea, this henotheism, is what led to a later idolatry. We do the same today, don't we? We say we follow Christ, but then our lives give testimony to the fact that we actually also worship other gods. We worship Mammon, the god of money, Ashtaroth, the god of sex and fertility and prosperity. We worship the gods of comfort and entertainment and material possessions and romance and identity, popularity, and on and on we go. We give our time, our talents, and treasure to these without even a second thought that they sit on the same level as the God we say that we serve alone in Christ. Friends, to have the lordship of Christ reigning over us, we must actively and regularly seek out and destroy all other altars and gods so that Yahweh alone has our devotion, submission, and worship. So David begins by commanding that glory be ascribed to Yahweh alone. And notice the phrase, O heavenly beings, in verse 1. Now, this was certainly angelic beings, but it's broad enough of a phrase that he could have been explicitly telling even the demonic beings that sit behind the false idols that they must give glory to Yahweh and stop claiming it for themselves. Thus, Yahweh's name is represented 18 times because David wants it to be clear that he alone sits in the kingly robes that are pictured here by the phrase, the splendor of his holiness. For the polytheists and the henotheists that existed in and around the land of Canaan, they pictured their god Baal and the Mesopotamian god Hadad riding bulls with thunderbolts in their hands, striking the earth in their anger. And so David, as a criticism and dismissal of those gods, builds a poetic apologetic here for the power of Yahweh. Yahweh, he says, is so powerful, he need not ride in the storm at all himself, but creation, and specifically this storm, react to the very voice of God, the one who brought the worlds into existence by the same command of his word. Notice how often David says throughout verses 3 through 9, the voice of Yahweh. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters, the God of glory thunders. Yahweh over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yahweh breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of Yahweh flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. Let's try that again. All cry, glory. One more time, nice and loud. All cry, glory. There we go. That's a little bit better. <laughs> Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh. Now we can imagine David here watching a massive storm building over the mighty waters of the Mediterranean Sea, coming ashore over Lebanon to the north of Israel, and then rolling through the entire length of the land of Canaan until it dissipates and clears over the desert to the south of Kadesh. The storm at that point will have encompassed all of Israel with this route. And David was so affected by its power that he is telling both man and spiritual being that the mighty strength of the storm that proceeded over the people of Israel is a mere echo of the powerful voice of the one who similarly sits over his people in majestic sovereign rule. 
Friends, as we move into the late summer and into the fall, we're going to start having some storms. And the next storm that comes through, I want to encourage you to read this psalm aloud as you look to the storm for a picture of God's majesty. Commentators tell us that this was a practice in the early church as they met during great storms. Yes, we know the scientific activity that acts to build the storm. But friends, that does not deny the maker and creator that sits behind it and has founded the whole of creation by his command. We know that it's these things that build. Where did they come from? Where did the atoms come from? Well, the Bible tells us it is God alone who is behind all that we see. Hebrews 1, 3 through 4 says this. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Friends, think about it for a moment, that if God let go with the word of his power, all creation would cease to exist. That's what this says. Do you really think you have lordship over your life now? Yes, the storm is a meteorological phenomenon. But friends, it still contains the very communication of God to a watching world that he is creator, judge, and savior. And this is why those in his earthly and heavenly temple both cry aloud in verse 9, glory, for that is all that can be mustered when we truly grasp the splendor and power of God. David clearly declares for us that to praise the creator God as he deserves, we must first ascribe glory to him, which is to acknowledge his supreme worth and holiness. And then we must worship him. The Hebrew word behind the English worship is to prostrate or bow down before him. It is to bring our will and mind and heart into submission to his own. We've gotten so confused with taking rightful truth of the Bible that Jesus is our friend, our brother. These are truths, yes, but we've taken them and swung the pendulum the other way because now we take those and we turn ourselves into Lord and say, so I don't need to give him majesty and glory. But friends, if you've ever been in the, the presence of someone powerful, you are happy to prostrate yourself. You are happy to accept your place. I remember running into Bill Russell. If any of you don't know who he is, he's like the greatest basketball player of all time. Yeah, yeah, Michael Jordan. Bill Russell has way more rings than Michael Jordan. And he's older than me. I grew up watching his black and white film. He played for the Celtics. He made the Celtics what they are. And I remember going to meet him, and I'm bigger than he is. And I was still like, Mr. Russell, right? I was happy to just be in his presence. And this is just a dude, just a guy who put a leather ball in a hoop. I didn't need him to be my friend. I was just glad and thankful that he would even take time to shake my hand. And yet we get angry when God is presented as a king who deserves for us to plow our face in the ground in prostration because he is so glorious. Don't take away Jesus as my friend. The only reason he is your friend is because he is a majestic God who has made it so. Give him glory. And that will lead to more friendship than you can understand. Both of these psalms should cause us to pause and ask, do I truly submit to his sovereign lordship? Or am I constantly fighting to have sovereignty over my own life and relationships? 
over my own marriage and my children and my job and my church family, my very surroundings. Friends, this is a constant conviction for me personally. Why is it that I get frustrated and angry? Because I want to be Lord. Anybody else ever feel like that way? Life would be so much better if I were Lord. Because guess what? I try all the time and it's miserable for me and everyone else around me. So why can't we just say, Lord, forgive me and fall flat on our face and say, you're Lord. I'm done trying. You're Lord. You do with me as you please. Life will be a lot better when we do that. And the way that we know that we're doing this is when we or those around us notice that our inner lives are characterized by persistent anger, frustration, grasping for control, depression that will not flee in the Lord's presence, discontentment, addictive behaviors, ingratitude. Friends, if you see this in yourself and others see it in you, I want to encourage you that your heart is never so hardened that the Lord cannot break it and soften it for his use. But it's a question of sovereignty. And we have to give it up. Now, how do I know that it's never so hardened that he can't fix it? Because, friends, this is the same Lord whose voice calms the chaotic waters of the sea. There is no trauma or chaos within you that the Lord cannot calm. This is the same Lord whose powerful voice can break the mighty cedars of Lebanon. You ever seen a mighty cedar of Lebanon? It's a symbol still used on the very flag of Lebanon to declare independent pride and sovereignty of their nation. If the voice of God present in the storm can break the cedar, praise God he can break your heart and rebuild it once again. If you feel as though your walk in Christ is dead, his voice is the one that enlivens the calf and tames the wild ox. If you feel as though your spiritual walk is dry, his voice shakes the hardened and drought-ridden ground of the wilderness. And if you feel as though death has overtaken you and you have no hope personally or in your faith or in your marriage or with your children or in your life, well, his voice, it says, is the one that brings forth new life. His voice is the one that when you fully hear his royal command, a heart that is softened to him will break and will respond with praise and thankfulness, glory, Glory to God in the highest. Friends, no matter where you are or what you are struggling with, God's voice has come forth to call you home to him in repentance and humble worship. Where is he calling you to submit your life to him and stop fighting in prideful resistance for your own sovereignty? Perhaps it's in this simple yet hard baseline of giving your life fully over to him as Lord. Not just Savior, but Lord. And this is where we end with the pronouncement of the Lord's sovereign authority. Verses 10 through 11. The pronouncement of the Lord's sovereign authority. We began with an announcement of the Lord's sovereignty, an announcement, but here we have a pronouncement. A pronouncement is different from an announcement because it's a formal proclamation that the king has been enthroned. The coronation processional has here ended, and Yahweh sits enthroned over the cosmos forever. 
But interestingly, David connects him to the specific God that stands in victory over the chaos. He's enthroned over the flood. All prior statements of this flood, the word that's used here in the Hebrew, are in the Genesis flood narrative. And so it's absolutely connecting to not just any flood, but the flood. Yahweh is the king who can grant life, and he is the one who can remove it. He is the one who has ultimate sovereignty over creation. And therefore, David approaches the throne and asks humbly that the Lord would save his people, bless them, and give them peace. David models the life of, the, of one of the Lord's people as we go to him and cling to him and, and treat him for life and all provision. To recognize the sovereign lordship of Christ over our lives, we must understand that it is an impossibility to exist apart from God and his sustaining power. To think that we can go any manner of time without complete reliance upon his mercy and grace is to walk in blatant ignorance and foolishness. There are many people wandering around this world whose very atoms are held together by the word of his power that think simply because they're not destroyed, there is no God. How foolish are they going to feel when they stand before him in all his majesty? G.H. Wilson in his commentary says this, to rebel as if one could be independent of God is to opt for non-being and is ultimately ridiculous. When God withholds his power, everything withers, fades, languishes, and comes to nothing. What a gracious and patient God we have that he allows us to continue in our relative rebellion and arrogant independence, waiting patiently for us to acknowledge his sovereign rule and graciously speaking to us in his word that we need to acknowledge that sovereign rule. All the while, he is graciously sustaining us by his power in spite of our refusal to worship as we should. And when we begin to understand this truth, that he has been that patient and that gracious, it should bring us to our knees in praise. Amen? Amen. And this is what these two psalms are. Pure praise. And so what is our application this morning? To praise him for his mercy and grace. To be brought to our knees in adoration, gratitude, and awe of his power, not just in this two-hour period on a Sunday, but every moment of our day. To worship as citizens who have watched our benevolent, perfect, and holy God be enthroned as protector, provider, and savior of our people. In dying for our sins and resurrecting victoriously three days later, the express image of this king, this king of glory, declared us his children and his friends and his citizens. But this in no way removes or lessens the splendor of his holiness that we must recognize and bow down before in humble worship. To see him and his royal power rightly is to acknowledge how far from it we innately are and give him praise that he has graciously washed us, and dressed us, and invited us into his presence so that we might give him praise. This is all by his grace. And so may our hearts learn this morning what it is to bow in humble adoration to him as the royal procession of the king of glory passes by. Let us be a people that give him the praise that he deserves. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. It seems so odd to even pray right now because you are so powerful, so strong, so big, so majestic. And yet you want to hear from us. What an insane thought. 
Thank you, Lord, for being so gracious that you would condescend to us to give us your word and point out the very thing that we are blind to, that you hold the very molecules of our being together, that you give us the air to breathe, the earth that we inhabit. And just as an exclamation point on your glory and beauty, you gave us the unfathomable, unfathomable universe of stars to see how big you are. God, everything speaks to your glory. Forgive us when we have not. And help us now as we enter into a time of worship and declaration of the truth of your son's death and resurrection. Help us to be a people that gain an understanding of even a portion of what we've talked about today. And help us to declare your glory. Just as the people in the temple shouted out glory to you, we pray that you would be enthroned on the praises of your people now. In Jesus' name, amen.